You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, we're still doing our judges wrap up. We actually um, have a couple more things we want to cover at least. I'm not sure. I can't even remember how many of those notes that I sent or how many items were in the note that I sent you or how many uh, we already covered like after I had written it down. So um, we basically have two things left okay. that I want to hit and then we're going to do a quick I call the drive by of Ruth because we're going to spend a whole lot of time there and then we're going to jump into Samuel. But okay. uh, yeah, these were just two of the major issues. Uh, I think the other stuff we kind of covered or we're going to cover when we get to Samuel. Okay. So I, I didn't want to be too redundant, but these were things I didn't see coming up again anytime in the near future for our podcast. And you guess you could say we are on the other oddities part of the podcast okay because uh yeah i mean last week we definitely got into the the oddities yeah and this one is also in the oddities and i'm still it's one of those topics that i think there's more to it than what anybody's getting at Mm -hmm. but i don't know what it is or how it is there's just an itch in my brain that says there's more to this so i'm going to throw it out there and maybe somebody smarter than me is going to listen to this and go Hey, here's the missing piece. So this particular topic, it's the navel of the earth. And now where was it we came across that? I can't remember which chapter. Judges 9. And this is when uh, Abimelech has taken over Shechem. And Gael has shown up and he's taking on Abimelech. And remember, Abimelech is Gideon's son. And so the specific verse is Judges 9.37. And I'm just going to read it. Says Gael spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the diviner's oak. That word there for center is tabor, and it's only used twice in the Bible. And the English has the center of the land, or sometimes they'll say the navel of the earth. And this is the reason why this became a topic. The second time that we find this phrase is in Ezekiel 38 12. And it's a prophecy against Gog, describing Gog's attack on God's people. And he calls his people the people who dwell at the center, the Tabor, or the navel of the earth. And specifically, when it's talking there, it's talking about the mountains of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna, this is going to sound like we're going to go all around Katie's barn to, to make a point, And we kind of are because... But that's what we do here. <laughs> well, and this is one of those topics that takes us, I think, even further. Because it, it's so tied up with several different concepts. And what we find is in most ancient Near Eastern cultures, mountains are considered to be the navel of the earth. And Judaism was no different. Uh, we have several different texts that, that attest to this because outside the Bible, we have First Enoch. This is 26.1. And from there, I proceeded to the center of the earth, the navel of the earth. And I saw the blessed place where there are trees that had branches and abide and sprout. And there I saw a holy mountain. So we have that connection of mountain, trees, and Mm -hmm. the the navel of the earth. So 
what's funny okay like what was really funny just now is looking for that because i was trying to remember where it was and i was like because i do think it's funny this started as a footnote Mm -hmm. in the the hebrew study bible thing is i didn't find it in the first footnote it was off in the commentary section i was like wait a minute Wait, because I, I remember looking, did, the did I, was there really a footnote there? Because right. I, I couldn't find it. I was about to freak out for just a second. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, this really is a footnote as far as the Bible's concerned, but it was not a footnote as far as Second Temple literature was concerned. So we've got the, the quote from, from Enoch, but then we also have Jubilees, uh, Jubilees 819, excuse okay. me. And he knew the Garden of Eden is the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of the Lord, and Mount Sinai, the center of the desert, and Mount Zion, the center of the navel of the earth. These three were created as holy places facing each other. Now, that, that passage in Jubilees, what it's talking about specifically is there's this account where Noah is dividing up the land according to his three sons, and he's casting lots to do it. Okay. And Shem's lot fell in what we know to be Israel. And he's glad that Shem received the holy places, and one of which is the navel of the earth. Right. So um, you'll notice that in each of those verses in Enoch and Jubilees, and even in Ezekiel and uh, Judges, it's associated with mountains. Mm -hmm. Specifically, uh, Ezekiel, Enoch, and Jubilees associates the navel of the earth with Jerusalem. Only in Judges is it a different place. Okay. So, now, remember, the other name for Jerusalem is Mount Sinai. And so, again, that, that mountain connection. So, why the connection? Mount Zion. Thank you. You say, yeah. Yeah, different. Zion. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Like, no, no, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah. So, why the connection between navel and mountains? Um, and is the navel of the world a single mountain? Okay. That I think those are questions that we need to ask. In ancient Near Eastern thought, mountains were the homes of gods. We, we've talked about this. Right. That this is, you know, Mount Olympus uh, is probably the most famous home of the gods. Um, no humans live there. They're, they're where water came from. The, the snow would melt, the water would come down, it would form the rivers, which would form the, the, the seas and lakes and what have you, which provided sustenance for people who live in deserts. Right. So very important. Um, it's close to the heavens, and they act as a connection point between the heavens and the earth. So if God is going to come down, and we see this in, in biblical literature, where God comes down to Sinai, he's able to, to meet with his people there. Mm-hmm. And so this, this connection becomes not just about being able to, to meet with God, but also about sustaining life which that's exactly what a navel is about. It's that umbilical cord connection between mother and child. Mm-hmm. So the two images play off each other. And we also find in Isaiah 14, 13, this is the place where God meets with his assembly. Mm-hmm. So it's throughout the Bible. I didn't go into all the references because we do talk about it a lot. So mountaintops in ancient Near Eastern religion were um, places of temples and gardens. Exodus 24, 9 through 10 describes the uh, tile work on Mount Sinai under God's throne where he's seated when he's talking to, to Moses. Mount Zion? No, Sinai. Okay. Sinai. This yes. time Sinai. Yeah. Okay. I am Sorry. on Sinai. I'm right Sorry. this time. Shut up. No. <laughs> just check in. I'll yeah. make sure we get our mountains right. <laughs> yeah. Whenever Moses is on Sinai and he's receiving the, the Torah from God, 
God is seated on the throne and there's tile work beneath him, indicating that it's more than just a mountaintop. It is an actual throne temple. Room. Yeah. Well, yeah. Throne room located in a temple. Okay. Uh, Ezekiel 28.13 places the Garden of Eden on that mountaintop. Uh, Ezekiel 28.14 specifically declares that Mount Zion is God's holy mountain. Uh, Mount Zion is described as a beautiful garden. You find that in Isaiah 30, 20 through 22, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, Zechariah 14, 8, Joel 3, 18. Eden is described as the seat of the gods. That's in Ezekiel 28, 2. And a number of the most significant divine encounters in the Torah occur on mountains. You know, we have Mount Ararat, where the Noah, Noah's Ark came to rest, and Noah built an altar there, and God formed the covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant. Mm-hmm. We have Mount Ebal. This is near Shechem. This is where jo- Joshua renews the covenant with the people after um, Moses has died. And about half, the, well, this is right after Ai, and half the people meet on Ebal, but the other half meet on Mount Gerizim, and also near Shechem. Okay. So Shechem is kind of between these two big mountains. If you'll remember Jotham's fable, which was delivered against Abimelech, happened from Mount Gerizim. And then Mount Hor, which is where Aaron dies, and he transfers the priesthood to Eleazar, one of his four sons. And Mount Moriah, where we have the binding of Isaac. And God meets with David there before the building of the temple. David built an altar. And later, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, becomes the location of the temple. Mount Nebo is where Moses looks into the promised land, and Balak takes Balaam to curse Israel. Okay. This becomes the, uh, also later becomes the place where supposedly the Ark of the Covenant's hidden, one of the places. And of course, you know, we can't get anywhere without Mount Sinai with the burning bush and mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments. Almost every mountain addressed in the Torah has some kind of temple connection with it. And as a temple, a place where God meets with humanity. And it's affirming that, at least in the um, Old Testament text, that these are connections between heaven and earth, and a place where God can meet with, with humanity. So Heiser wrote extensively about this in Unseen Realm. So I'm pulling a lot of information from that, and I want to give credit where credit's due. Right. And if you want to know more, there's a lot more, but you're going to need to get the book. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's worth checking out, I think. But he, he also he, he points out, and I thought this was interesting, that you know between mountains, what do you have? You get valleys. Mm-hmm. And these valleys become a place of spiritual warfare. And this is kind of what's going on here. Two of our most famous uh, valleys, when I say going on here in Judges, we're going to get back to that. But two of the most famous valleys are the Valley of the Rephaim. Right. And this is where David defeats the Philistines. Mm -hmm. And it's somewhere near Bethlehem, near Mount Zion. There's some debate on exactly where it is. But we do know that it borders the Valley of Hinnon. Now, Hinnon is their basis for Gehenon. Right. So our metaphor of hell. And this is the place where Manasseh sacrificed his sons. And okay. you know, he was the evil king that Judges was written during the time of his reign or shortly thereafter or before, somewhere in there. And so when Gael speaks, he's in a valley. He's between Ebal and between Jerizim. So he's right there by Shechem. 
And he's in this place where Joshua had, had been with the people to reaffirm uh, the covenant. Okay. Now, keep all this in mind. There's a lot of pieces here. So there's a yeah, little... this is kind of quite a lot to hold on to. <sighs> yeah. Oh, it's going to get even better. So Samuel Terran, uh, Terrian, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He has an article called The Umphalus Myth and the Hebrew Religion. Okay. Not umphalus, but isn't this a great word, umphalus? And he discusses how, I'm going to define this for a second. He yeah, discusses, you should. <laughs> yeah. It's a funny sounding word. It, it's a great word. He discusses how the Hebrew may have honored, borrowed the terminology, so not honored, borrowed the terminology, navel of the world from the Canaanite religion. And umphalus is the Greek word that they use for the Canaan, that Canaanite idea of the navel of the world. Okay. So basically, umphalus, navel of the world, tabor is Hebrew. So tabor, umphalus, navel, all of them mean the same thing. Sure. Okay. So he also explains how this motif really helps us understand some of the practices of Judaism and why certain items had certain meanings and, and the way people approach them. And we're going to talk about a few of those. So he kind of goes over some of the same ground Heiser did and talks about how uh, the Bible puts Eden at the center of the world. Okay. Genesis 2, 10 through 14, Ezekiel 28, 13, Zechariah 14, 8. Uh, Ezekiel 5, 5 just says, I have set her, Jerusalem, because he moves from Eden to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jerusalem becomes the center of the world. He says, I have set her at the center of nations. So this idea of being central to the world, to all of the nations, becomes a huge part of Judaism. Taryn believes that it was the Jebusites, which if you remember the Levite and the concubine, they did not want to stop in the city of Jabus mm -hmm. because they weren't Israelites. We know that the editor included the note that this was Jerusalem. Jabus and Jerusalem were the same place. Okay. It was the Jebusites who first came up with the idea of Jerusalem being the center of the world. That's not a problem. A lot okay. of Christians have a huge problem. The reason why it's not a problem, before Jabus was Jabus, it was Salem. Sure. And Salem was the home of Melchizedek. Sure. And Melchizedek was a priest of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense whenever you, you follow through that line of logic. But again, this is where geography becomes such a huge player in understanding the biblical narrative. And the names change, and that, that makes it really hard. So. Right. Yeah, well, and it's like you were talking about. Uh, there's the prob people have a problem with it because of the you know it wasn't uh, originally the Israelites, but if you go back to Melchizedek, it's like well, if you have a problem, keep going, mm -hmm. kind of like go to the next, go to the next level and see where see where you wind up. That that's really the thing with most biblical studies. When there's a problem, it's because somebody stopped too soon. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and was the guy uh, this? The singer from Skillet was talking about how uh, all the the famous worship leaders are are complaining that uh, that they're they're leaving the church because they're discovering all these things. And we kind of touched on the same mm -hmm. idea of people discovering what goes on in the Old Testament. And they're like, "Oh, it destroys our faith," and and no one's talking about these terrible things. And and is it John Cooper? Is that his name? I don't remember. Uh, I lead singer from Skillet. Um, I I don't remember. I remember the article you're talking but, about. Well, I don't. I didn't read the whole article, but I I, I remember the the quote, the poll quote from it that uh, was was literally everyone is talking about this. There's <laughs> books and stacks and stacks of books mm -hmm. if you just go look. And it's the again, you're stopping too 
soon if when you when you get to the problem you have to hit it head on otherwise i mean it will just it'll eat at you at the back of your brain until you're mm-hmm. and then somebody you're way off track somebody who thinks that they've discovered some new bit of information comes along and goes oh well look here here's the the final knife for your for your faith to kill mm-hmm. it off mm-hmm. and if you already know it and even if you you don't have the answers if you're wrestling with it then it's like okay, yeah, I've got your information and I, I'll put it in the pile of other things I'm sifting through, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have to destroy your faith. Right. And so that's the reason why, you know, when people hear about other religions that might have the same ideas of Judaism you know, and they freak out, well, why? I mean, everybody was in the same place. Mm-hmm. Everybody's connected, even the Moabites, their family, uh, the Edomites, their family. So every other nation that's practicing these different religions still had their their roots in Judaism. Yep. And so it shouldn't freak us out. But back to Tarion, he he states that there's three overlapping ideas. There's the mountains that are the homes of gods and the connection points between heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. The navel, which again, that sustaining idea, that connection being the the source of life. And then trees, and this is the cosmic tree mm-hmm. that goes up. And this is, um, Heiser talks about a lot when he talks about the flat earth things, um, that people talk about the flat earth and the, the way the Bible describes uh, cosmology. And he always asks them, well, where's, where's the tree? Where's mm-hmm. the cosmic tree? Because the, the idea of the cosmic tree is that there's this tree in the center of the earth that extends up into heaven. And then the roots extend down into Sheol. And so um, nobody's yet to find that tree. You find the tree, I'm on board with the flat earth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so until then, I'm sticking with the globe. Um, but basically these... these well, I mean, if the, if the tree does exist, I'm going to assume it exists on the other plane. <laughs> right. But that's a whole nother topic for another day. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're not going to quantum physics today. Um but basically, the, the, these ideas, the navel, the tree, the mountain, are, are three interchangeable metaphors for the same thing, the mm-hmm. same idea. And, you know, the earth begins by heavenly fiat and is sustained through heavenly support and nourishment it is what it boils down to. And then it goes further in that everything that happens on this physical plane is being... is a reflection or a mirror of what's happening in the spiritual mm-hmm. realm. So um, there's a Hebrew tradition that says that basically where Mount Zion is, that directly above it in heaven is a temple for God. And when the high priest offers sacrifices in the temple on earth, that Michael offers sacrifices to God in heaven. So the this idea that there's this connection But it's a connection that's not just that we're interconnected, but we're actually interdependent on each other. Mm -hmm. And um, for a real fun look at that one, uh, Stephen Lawhead, Song of Albion. Yeah, really interesting fictional treatment of that type of idea. Yeah. uh, And fun little brain exercise. But another Jewish tradition actually takes this further, and they claim that the stone that Jacob used at Bethel when he... um, that wrestled with God that he had been using as a pillow became the stone that Abraham, well, actually, yeah, sorry, Abraham used it first as the stone for the altar that he offered Isaac on. Mm-hmm. 
And then David later at the same place with the threshing floor that became the home of the temple, he built an altar using that stone. And that Solomon used that stone when he laid the foundation of the temple. Mm -hmm. Okay. So George Moore, uh, another writer, he explains that these sacred stones were important to ancient Near Eastern religion. And these stones oftentimes were kind of uh, a rounded triangle. A triangle. They weren't quite a full-on pyramid, but they kind of had that, that general mm -hmm. shape. And they were, in, in effect, these kind of uh, small mountains mm -hmm. that could be moved and used in worship even when there wasn't a mountain. And this also kind of explains why ancient temples like ziggurats mm -hmm we're built in a, t in a mountain shape so we can create a mountain so that we can yeah. get to God. And we go back to Babel and, you know, we're going to go up to the heavens mm -hmm. and make a name for ourselves. Which, yeah, that would make, that would actually make sense uh, with, in, even with the pyramids. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're going to be putting someone there who, who is going to become a God. Then you, you build a, a point. Of, yeah. Got to yeah. have a point of connection. And so it may not be about aliens coming down to land on the pyramid is what you're saying. It's more about going up. <laughs> more about people trying to, yeah, transcend. Yeah. So, yeah. But th these, these little, these stones, these sacred stones, or sometimes called living stones, were kind of used to activate this connection between heaven and earth. And, and they're called umphalus. So the navel, the tabor, all the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of overlapping language here. And they, like I said, they're, they're more than just rocks. They're, they're considered to be living stones. And in some religions, they were actually believed to be able to speak and move around. And in reality, they were probably meteorites that somebody had stumbled across shortly after they fell or what have mm -hmm. you. Um, the most famous of these is located or was located at Delphi. And if you'll remember your Greek um, mythology, Cronos um, knew that one of his sons was going to kill him. And so he always swallowed his children shortly after they were born. Right. And his wife wrapped up a stone and gave it to him and he swallowed it thinking it was Zeus. Mm -hmm. And this was the stone that he vomited up. And so it was put at Delphi and it was supposed to um, be able to help activate that connection between the heaven and the earth. Interesting. So, but there's an alternate name in the Greek for the umphalos and it's a betria. Okay. I know a lot of language here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now the problem is Betlia is not a Greek word. It's a Semitic word. The Greeks borrowed it from the Phoenicians. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm nerding out here because this is great. My mind was like melting when I was doing this. I know you're like. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out where we're going, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So the Betlia borrowed from the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, it was Betel. If that sounds familiar, it's because in Hebrew, Beit El becomes Bethel. Mm -hmm. So if more is correct, the Bethel is not the name of the place. Bethel is the name of the stone that Jacob used. Okay. And so the, these were kind of considered to be a representation of God without being an image of God. So, or an, an iconic representation of God. So you don't, you aren't trying to portray what he looks like. You're just, it, it's a reminder he's there. Yeah. And iconic as in like, uh, we'd use like atypical as in mm -hmm. not iconic. Right. Or yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you aren't trying Anaerobic to. Anaerobic without oxygen. Yeah. So. You don't want to try to, to make something that looks like God, but you, you want something to, to demonstrate his presence. 
and these stones were were activated or um, honored by anointing them, and the, you would anoint them with wine or oil or blood, mm-hmm. depending on what religion you're following. Sure. You know, Jacob he anointed the stone at Bethel with oil. Mm-hmm. So he seems to be falling in this Canaanite practice that was very popular. And the, the thing is with all of this is it all comes back to this idea of connection and the, the idea of support. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the connection is dependent in, in Judaism. Okay, let me back up. In Canaanite religion and in ancient Near Eastern religion, the the connection is made because people do the right rituals. It's because people take the right steps in Mm -hmm. order to activate these stones or these sacred spaces. Mm -hmm. In Judaism, it's always just the opposite. It's where God says, I'm going to show up because I want to. I have decided this is the appropriate place for me to appear. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened at Bethel. This is what happens at Sinai. This is what happens at Mount Zionai, uh, Zionai, <laughs> Mount Zion. Sorry. And, um, just put them together. Yeah. You know, which <laughs> that way you don't have to worry about it. And, but it, in Judaism, it really is about total dependence on God's ability to, to not only give life, but to sustain life. And in doing so, the, the, the stones become a representative of when God had appeared. Mm hmm. And, and to remind us when God had shown up, and, and we see this several times, but to, to kind of illustrate that, if you go back, remember the, the temple that's on top of the mountain where the stone was, mm-hmm. there was a point where God left. And that was the point, you know, the, the God's spirit, his glory goes over to Mount Olive, and this is the beginning of the end for the nation of Israel. Right. And, and so when God stops being connected with his people, then his people start to, you know, they fall apart. Their world literally comes to an end. So back to the book of Judges. I know we went all around. Yeah, no, there's a lot of information there. (laughs) Yeah. So Gail's speech identifies three things. People are coming down from the mountaintops. Mm -hmm. This is the home of the gods. The navel of the world, the place Mm -hmm. where the gods connect with humanity. The diviner's oak the place where God's will is revealed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to read this passage and listen to what you hear. This is from Joshua 24, 25 through 28. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. They're near Shechem. They're between Ebal and Jerizim. And he put a place, statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And jo- Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it under the terebinth. That was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, the stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard the words of God that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent away every man to his inheritance. This is how the book of Joshua ends. Okay. So they're, they're at Shechem, the same place where Gaal is. Mm-hmm. They have just reunited after separating between. Um, Jerizim and Ebal, mm-hmm. he sets a stone near the terebinth. The terebinth is another word for oak. Mm-hmm. And it's near the sanctuary of God, which mm-hmm. is God's home on earth. So basically, he, he's, Joshua is mentioning the same three things that Gael did. 
the, the stone, the navel of the earth, functioning mm-hmm. as an umphalus or a batria. The, the terebinth, the oak of the diviner, parallels okay. there. And the mountains had come into play with sure. Joshua. Sure. So I'm thinking, and this is just my speculation, that one of two things is happening here. The writers of the judges is showing us how far the people had twisted and perverted everything that had once been holy mm-hmm. and had turned it into something that becomes mystical, wrapped up in other uh, religions and other ways to worship the wrong gods. Mm-hmm. Because we were talking about that last episode, those things that cross over, the, the symbols that, that may work, what, where, what are we allowed as Christians to engage in versus what do we need to draw a line at? And it looks, and I think maybe they've absorbed these symbols okay. and these once holy objects, and they're, they're using them incorrectly to the point they've forgotten why they were originally created to begin with. Okay, yeah. So the, the other thing is that they do still recognize that these are gods. Uh, this, I mean, when I say they're gods, that they belong to Yahweh. Yeah, possessive case, yeah, not plural. Exactly. That they belong to Yahweh, but because they've become evil and wicked, they are now terrifying things. They're scary things. Hmm. And whereas before, you know, if you're worshiping God and you're in harmony with God, then the things that represent God don't scare you. Sure. They should comfort. Right. But Gael was not the kind of person who would find much comfort in the presence of God. Yeah, fair enough. So that's just my, my speculation. Okay. So, you know, just quick recap there. Basically, the navel of the earth is anything that demonstrates or manifests God's presence and reminds people of God's presence. And it does not have to be a single mountain. It doesn't have to be a single location. Okay. Because every, you know, all those mountains I listed off, God had shown up there. God had used that place as a temple to meet with humanity, either one-on-one or in groups. So, because God's God gets to decide where he shows up and how he shows up. Fair enough. So, is that... <laughs> oh, that's, that, that's a lot of very interesting information. It's going to take me a while to process that. I have to, oh, yeah. So. No, my brain was like sizzling because there yeah. was just like so much. And uh, I, there's actually not a lot of work done on that. I was surprised how, how little I could find on that specific piece of terminology because it is so common in ancient Near Eastern religions. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the Bible even references it. And you know, basically the Bible writers, they take this phrase from these other religions and say, yeah, we're going to repurpose it for our stuff. Right. And, and I love that. I mean, to, for me, anytime we can take something that has been used for evil and, and use it for good, I, I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. So, but I think that's kind of all I've got to say on the navel of the earth. Okay. So now we're going to, well, that, that was, that was something. So now, now we're going to move into, uh, another easy one, right? Oh yeah. Women in leadership. You have half an hour. Go. Ah, dad yeah. <laughs> So we're going to solve it all today. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. So actually you bring up the first, the first problem. So I, I don't think we have to really outline the problem, but for, uh, for most people, there's a huge divide. We'll just lay it out there. There's a huge divide in the Christian church, whether or not women should be leaders. Right. And basically there are two clobber passages um, that mm-hmm. are used to 
say that, no, this is not uh, permissible. So the first one is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Get this book. <laughs> get the, 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 the have Christian the, version. Got to have the one with the New Testament in it. And, oh, let me see. Is that the right word? 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, right? If yeah. I can find it. <laughs> yeah, it's in there, I promise. We may have to uh <laughs> may have to do some editing. Uh-oh. <laughs> Making my job know. harder on me. So Okay. Ah, here it is. Yes, first Timothy two. First Tim okay. okay, I'm just gonna read verse I'm gonna start in verse twelve. The whole passage should start in verse eight through and go through fifteen, just so you know. Context, context, context. Mm -hmm. That that goes across the board even for these sticky um passages that people might think I don't like. But I'm just going to read 12. Uh, you can go back and read the rest of it yourself. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. For she shall be, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Okay, so I'm just going to do some quick points about this. There's more, but I want to point out just a few things. The word there, authority, is the Greek authentane. It doesn't mean authority. It, it, it's not translated as authority anyplace else. It, it really means to domineer, to bully. So I don't permit a woman to bully a man. This is just good advice. In general. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's only, this word is only used one time in scripture. It's an unusual word for Paul to use. Uh, usually, if he talks about authority, he's going to use exousia. And we find that in 2 Corinthians 10.9. For if I ever boast a, a little too much of our, of our authority, which the Lord gave us for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So he's, he's using a totally different word that he never uses again. And it's not found anywhere else in the Bible. And that right there is problematic. Because okay, yeah. we don't know how Paul intends it. We don't have any other passages to compare it to. And we don't have any other passages in the New or Old Testament with the Septuagint to compare it to. So anytime you've got a single-use word, you're, you're giving a translator a headache. Sure. So um, now what I find to be very interesting with the ESV is anytime we have exousia, um, it's almost always translated as authority when referring to women, but it's generally translated as right when referring to, the, to men. So why, I, you have to ask, why would they make that distinction, the, the translation team? Why would it become authority when talking about authority over women, but it's rights every other time? Hmm. Anyway, if so, you... Okay, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> If you're paying real close attention, you're going to notice that the pronouns shift from, plur from plural women to singular woman. So there, there's some debate there. Who is Paul talking to? Is he talking to a group of, of women, a specific group of women? Is he talking to a singular woman? We don't know. Uh, there's a lot of theories put out there. Uh, one of them that he's talking to a specific group of rich women within the church in verses 8 through 10. And then in verses 8, 11 through 15, he's talking to a specific woman mm -hmm. or a couple. Because if you notice in the last line, 
and they continue, if they continue in faith. Well, who's they? Well, a lot of commentators think that this is this woman and her husband. Um, again, not spelled out really well. It's connected to this idea of Genesis, Genesis one, uh, 3 with the, the temptation and women being deceived. And it very specifically says that, that Eve was deceived, not Adam. Okay, so one of my hobby horses, and I won't <laughs> climb on too long, but th- there's this idea that women are inferior because they were deceived, but somehow Adam's better because he deliberately rebelled. Mm-hmm. That's mixed up, guys. That's really bad logic and reasoning. And I think Paul is smarter than that. I want to give him a little bit more credit. So one of the suggestions that commentators have come up with is the idea that possibly Paul is refuting a, a teaching that was going around at that point in time. And we know these teachings were out there. Um, you can find them in the Gnostic writings that Adam was deceived and Eve was not. Right. And so if Paul is correcting that teaching, then this, that passage makes sense. Mm-hmm. Without it, it, it's kind of weird. Um, also, she will be saved through childbirth. You can't find any complementarian who will agree on what this means. So uh, John Piper, he says that she'll be kept safe in childbirth. MacArthur says women can be saved from the stigma of the fall through childbearing. So those two guys can't even agree. And that's their words. Now, Mounts, and if you do any work with the Greek language, Bill Mounts is like one of the go-to guys. He's one of the top three. You, you sure. just automatically look for what he has to say. He notes that the words here for saved is sozo. Sozo always, when Paul is writing, he's always talking about salvation. Mm-hmm. And so where Piper and MacArthur say this can't have anything to do with salvation, Mounts actually takes a different look. And he says there, it is something connected to spiritual um, salvation, but he doesn't know exactly what it is. I found 14 different ways to translate this particular line. Okay. 14. I'm not going to go through them all. But uh, matter of fact, I'm not going to go through any more than what I already have. Okay. But I, I mean, wonder if we had like a, you know, top three <laughs> list or something. Yeah. Well, pretty much that was it. Okay. Um, but my, my point is. Nobody knows what this means. Nobody can agree on it. Even people who claim to have the same theological and doctrinal view on this passage do not agree on what it means. Sure. And there's no clear or simple reading of this passage for anyone. And if you think, well, the English is clear, the Greek is the most confusing thing in the world. Mm. Uh, And I've looked at it. I've translated it. I've retranslated it. I've checked my semantics. And I'm not that great with Greek, but I'm better than most people. And the thing is, when I'm looking at experts to be helped and they can't agree on it, right? there's a problem. So that's the first passage. Well, and, and I don't know if you're going to touch on this, but we, there are other passages that are more clear that seem to counter this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always, you know, it's a, I can't remember, is it you who said this or, uh, I, I, I've listened to I, one of my podcaster people that I listen to is, you know, we always use a clear verse. Mm-hmm. To, we never build doctrine. To counter the obscure or the confusing verses. 
So anyway, yeah. go ahead, because I know you're probably going to get to that second clobber <laughs> passage, and then we'll, we'll yeah, back, and then we'll kind of do a rebuttal. Yeah, Second Corinthians fourteen thirty three through thirty five. Um, helps if I know my verses. This Second Corinthians what? Fourteen thirty three through thirty five. Now I I'm going to debate. Second Corinthians how fourteen. Fir, how about First Corinthians? I've got it in my Bible. Say, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's not one here. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to debate whether or not this should start in thirty three uh, or not, but most. Most complementarians are going to start it with, as in all the, the churches of the saints. That's going to be the phrase they open up with. You'll notice if you opened your Bible that 33 is divided. Um, if you're, uh, it's not, what am I trying to say? It's not all together. Yeah, there's yeah. like a paragraph break in the English translation. Yes. And in the middle of the verse. In the middle of the verse. Okay, so there's a tip off right there. Um, Okay, so 34, the women should keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, so that phrase, as in all churches, should be at up on the next line. It should not begin. Paul never uses it to begin a phrase. This was added, this is an editorial decision. Mm -hmm. um, why they would decide to break it this way when they don't break it that way with any other time that Paul uses this phrase tells me that there's a bias on the part of the translator. I'm dying here because I really like my ESV, but I'm getting more and more fed up with it. I understand. Um, if some of the obvious problems that you can just gather just reading your English Bible if women were to be completely silent in churches, then chapter 11 of 1 first, of first Corinthians makes no sense, where women are told they need to cover their head when they pray and prophesy. Um, we, this is a description of a public declaration of prophecy mm -hmm. and about how they should conduct themselves. And so if you're going to pray and prophesy in public, and Paul's going to give you directions on that, why in the world is he turning around and saying you need to sit down and shut up? It doesn't makes sense. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says prophecy is hoped for. 14.29 through 30 describes how prophets should function together, submitting to each other with no regards to gender. And then we have where we're commanded to, you know, exercise in the gifts of the Spirit. So they, they logically consistently can't match up with the way Paul's writing. Right. So less obvious problems. In verse 34, if you'll notice, law is capitalized in the ESV. Mm -hmm. This is usually said to point out the fact that Paul is talking about the Torah. Sure. Nowhere in the Torah does it say women are supposed to be silent. You cannot find a verse in the Old Testament that says women are supposed to be silent. Hmm. So it can't be talking about the Torah. Furthermore, Paul teaches that we have been liberated from the law. Romans 3.28, Romans 6.14, Romans 8.2, Galatians 3.11, Galatians 4.5, Galatians 5.8. Just read Galatians. So, okay. <laughs> you know, it's... Galatians is a good book. I yeah, like it. Galatians is a good book. And the, the thing is, Paul is not for enforcing the law. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 4.6, he warns that we should never go beyond what is written, specifically what is written in the Torah. Sure. So why suddenly is he saying something 
that completely doesn't fit with the style and it doesn't fit with anything he said before or after. So given the break in style and content, there's three main proposals that scholars have come up with. One, Paul didn't write this section. I have a hard time with that. Sure. I, I'm not ready to do away with passages of the Bible, even when I don't agree or may not like them. I'm not saying I don't agree. There's something going on here. Or, that, or even, even if it's not official Pauline authorship. Right. Right. It was preserved for a reason. Yeah. I, I, can, I can have that much respect for this book. And I think we should all have that much respect for this book. Second option is Paul didn't write it here, that it should be moved to another place. Okay. It might actually make some more sense there. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, Gordon McPhee, uh, sorry, Gordon Fee, not McPhee. Gordon Fee, uh, he uh, has a lot of work on this. The third option, and this is the one I lean towards, is Paul is quoting a slogan that he wishes to refute. Okay. And we have examples of that uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 10, 23, uh, sorry, 6, 12, 10, 23, and 7, 11. These are times when Paul is quoting a well-known axiom, a slogan, something that's being taught, mm -hmm. and he's, he's quoting it back to them, but he's not doing it with approval. He's saying, this is what you're saying. Now I'm going to talk about the correct way we should be looking at this issue. Yeah, like, as Jesus, like Jesus saying, you've heard it said, mm -hmm. or it, as it is written, or, or something like that, and then saying, but what I'm saying is this. Right, because when Paul quotes, quotes Torah, he says it is written, and then he he quotes it verbatim from the Septuagint. Right. Where's, where's the quote? Right. There, there, there's no quote. And so if Paul is quoting somebody, he's either quoting something that the Corinthians has said to him, or he's quoting from the Mishnah, which is the oral law. Sure. And I think he's quoting from the Mishnah. I, I really do, because uh, Rabbi Eleazar says, the voice of a woman is filthy nakedness. Um, he says, some other things are written, uh, let the words of the Torah be burned rather than handed down to a woman. A woman's voice is sexually arousing like nakedness. A woman should not read Torah out of respect for the congregation. So same line of thought that seems to be presented here in Corinthians. Okay. And I think Paul is saying, hey, hold on, there, there's, there's a problem here. And I love what Dr. Catherine Bushnell says. She just points to scripture. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. So uh, David Odell Scott, he's a Kent State professor. He says that we should connect verses 35 and 36 with what? There's this exclamation. What? Was it to you that the word of the Lord came? Are you the only ones who it's reached? And basically saying that when we put those verses together, Paul, which is very Typical of Paul mm -hmm. is using a sarcastic rebuttal to say you are wrong. Interesting. Yeah. I, I and I really I'm leaning towards his translation. Now, the reason why I, I bring these up is because these are the two main passages used to say that women shouldn't teach. Right. I'm not going into most of the other passages that talk about family structure because I think women teaching and family structure are two totally different things. Well, and, and this is something I want to just point out too real quick um, because uh, one of the other uh, more, one of the reformed podcasts I listen to, yes, I listen to some reformed podcasts. <laughs> um, 
because I find it interesting to hear different perspectives on the Bible, mm-hmm. whether I agree with them necessarily or not. And um, one of them that I listened to uh, actually recently did a a podcast on complementarianism and and uh, versus yes. egalitarianism. You sent that link to me. Yeah, I sent you that one. <laughs> um, and I wasn't going to suffer alone. Um, but uh, you know, one of the one of the common arguments. And it's really funny to me that one of the common arguments they have against women in leadership is, well, show me where the Bible lists the qualifications for a female leader. (laughs) And what I find really funny about that is they are going to be the first ones, if at any point you, uh, because I've heard them talk about politics um, as well. (laughs) And, you know, I try to stay out of the the realm of politics, but whenever uh, anyone complains about the uh, masculine use of uh, of gender pronouns in uh, in American documentation, like uh, in the Declaration of Independence or in uh, the the Constitution, things like that, they're the they are the first ones to jump on board and say, "Well, that's just that was just society. That's just mm-hmm. how they referred to people in general back in the day." And so I find it very interesting that the first ones who are going to jump on that bandwagon and they're going to say, well, that was just assumed that the people in these roles would be would be men. It wasn't necessarily excluding women and yada, yada. Uh, but I, I find it funny that it's it's that whole bifurcation of of yeah. what goes on in uh, in the way they interpret scripture and in the way they, they look at the rest of the world. Well, you know, I could even argue that all of the Ten Commandments are written in the masculine. And so therefore I'm exempt. Uh, you know, we can, we can play the semantics game. Right. And we're going to wind up with a very butchered version of Scripture. And so I think, you know, we need to stop before we get to that point. Absolutely, yeah. And, well, but I'm just, I'm just pointing mm-hmm. out that, that that's, yeah. a, that's a common argument is that, well, there's nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it list the, the qualifications for a female leader. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And like I said, it, 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 we have to... You know, be okay. Women shouldn't try to argue. Oh, yes, it does. Or you know, be okay. No, it doesn't. And and don't try to stretch the truth to to make it bigger than what it is to accommodate us. We don't need that. I think we have all the support we need. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes we need to re- reject the premise of the question and actually reframe the question. Um, but you know, like Jesus did. Yeah, yeah. Well, here here's a question I have. When I said I wasn't going into the family structure, and I'm, I'm still not, but if you go back and you read all of the family structure passages, mm-hmm. one of the elements of the family structure are the servants and slaves. Mm-hmm. Now, we contextualize that today. We will totally contextualize that mm-hmm. and say, yes, oh, well, we don't have servants and slaves today, so it really doesn't apply, or it applies, you know, to being nice to the guy at the gas station or, you know, whatever. right. right. So why are we willing to contextualize that point instead of insisting that every good Christian home has a servant or a slave? Right. I, I don't understand. Why are we drawing the line there? Also, when the Bible talks about servants, slaves, and children, it uses the word obey. When it talks about wives, it's that they should submit. Mm-hmm. And so there's a difference. When Paul changes his language, he's changing the intended me- message and statement of what he's making. Right. He's well, a smart writer. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but everyone I know who is tends to tell me that Greek's a fairly precise language. It really is. This is the reason why we use it in medicine. And, you know, our mom was studying to do medical transcription for a while, and she couldn't figure out why I knew all of her vocabulary words. Right. And it, it's because... 
it's a precise language, and, the, and that's why we use it in so many of the sciences. Now, the one uh, family structure passage that I did want to look at was Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And I'm not going to read all of that, but this is where it's talking about wives submitting to their husbands. And it talks about wife, about how Christ loved the church. And this is how husbands should love their wives. And so let me just read 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water uh, with the word. And so then it continues. Now, if Christ is supposed, you know, husbands are supposed to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. How did that, you know, what did that look like? He lived for her. He died for her. He saved her. He empowered her and he commissioned her to share the gospel with the nations. Mm -hmm. So if we're going by the example of Christ in the church for what the husband and wife relationship should look like, then shouldn't the husbands be empowering and commissioning wives to go out and share the gospel the mm -hmm. same way that Christ did for his bride? Yep. The, the, the way we break this analogy down simply does not work unless we're willing to be biased about it. Right. And I, I have a problem when we start uh, trying to, to make uh, scripture fit our ideas. So literally, not only do we not have a passage that doesn't tell us what a woman's qualifications for leadership are, there's no passage limiting the woman's roles that are without dispute. Every single passage that could be pointed to, which two of them, yeah. are so fuzzy that no Greek scholars can agree upon what they mean with any kind of mass majority consensus. It's all up in the air. And so that's when we return to rule number one of exegesis. Scripture interprets scripture. Scripture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can begin. Here's my proof. Yeah, it's Miriam. She's a prophetess. Exodus fifteen twenty specifically says that she's a prophetess. Numbers twelve two indicates that God speaking through her was a normal activity. And when Micah is talking about who led Israel out of Egypt, this is Micah six four. He says Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, specifically placing her in, in the role leadership. of leadership. Yeah, yeah. Deborah, we. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on her because we got episodes on her, mm -hmm. but. She did rule as a judge. She's also recognized as a prophetess and by her own authority commanded that a uh, army be raised on behalf of God. Not only that, she commanded her own song be taught. At every well and watering hole. Mm -hmm. That her words should be taught. Yes. Um, Huldah, 2 Kings 22. She's a prophetess that the kings consulted. Mary, mother of God. Not explicitly named as a prophetess, but bears all the hallmarks of the prophetess when she sings the Magnificat. Yes, which so, is a beautiful passage. Exactly. Elizabeth, also Mary's cousin, also a prophetess. Anna, specifically identified as a prophetess in Luke 2, 36 through 8. Jesus' followers, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, Mary of the Mary and Martha, who sits at Jesus' feet mm -hmm. in the position of a disciple. Mm -hmm. Why do you teach disciples? It's not so they can go sit in their bedroom the rest of the day. It's so they can take that teaching out. Right. Um, she's partaking of the teaching just like men. Priscilla and Aquila, Acts 18, 24 through 28. They're the couple who teach together, never separately. Aquila is never mentioned without Priscilla. Her name always comes first, indicating she's the most active member of that couple. Sure. Philip's four daughters, Acts 21, 8 through 9, also identifies as ones who prophesy. Phoebe prays for her work as a servant, i.e. deacon, in Romans 16, 1. 
Now, now just to clarify, is that I've heard that that's the same word in Greek that we use for deacon mm-hmm. in deaconess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to clarify. Yeah, I've heard that in a. And it will be translated as deacon for men and women will get servant mm-hmm. in other translations. So the, and there's some debate on what, what that role looks like. But the point is the word is used the same for male and female. And if we're going to translate for one in a particular way, we need to translate for the other the same way. Sure. Uh, Junia, Acts 16, 7, known to or among the apostles, depending on who you uh, talk to. But we do know that she is a fellow prisoner with Paul. Therefore, she had to have a public ministry of some sort, or why were the Romans messing with her? Right. And that's just some high points. There's more than that. But nowhere do we have a, any story where a woman is told to sit down and shut up as long as they're proclaiming the truth of God. Right. They're always celebrated. And the idea that women could be bold and daring was not something that's part of Judaism. It is something that's part of Christianity, at least not Second Temple Judaism, and definitely not by the time we get to the Talmud. Right. But in Christianity, to free women to speak seems to be part of the entire passage, uh, part of package for, for Christian women. And what I'm finding, I really didn't consider myself that much of an egalitarian before we started this, this podcast. But right. as we've been working through, in particular as we went through judges, I am moving more and more that way because I'm seeing more and more evidence that it's women who, who stood up and took a stand, made a declaration, mm-hmm. did what was necessary in order to achieve a goal that are remembered as the heroes of our faith. And so often when we teach these women, we teach them as watered down and we teach them as weak. and that's not how they should be seen and that because it's not who they were. Right. And so when we talk about the weight of scripture, the sheer weight of scripture, we have two fuzzy verses against all these other examples of Mm -hmm. women in leadership and women teaching. So I have to come down on the side, which side has the most evidence. Right. And that is, we should be teaching, we should be sharing. And like it, literally, if you were to like type them up and, and like literally weigh, weigh them, them, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they would have have more more passages. Exactly. Which I mean, that's kind of a. I, I'm sorry, that was an absurd way for me to put it, but it's, but no, it's, it's kind of funny. There is a a standard of, of Bible study that says that the more words devoted to something, the the more importance and significance it has. Mm-hmm. And I think we actually referenced that in an episode prior to this. So yeah, there there is something to the idea of the sheer weight of Scripture. Yeah. So that, yeah, I, I think I'm wound up enough. We're good. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, it's one of those, those passages, it's one of those topics that, I mean, for me, it's like, I, it's mm-hmm. there. Um, and th- th- that's just part of where I am. But I, I, I have really, as we've gone through this, and again, I, I didn't have an opinion, mm-hmm. but I really have gone, okay, now I, I do think there is a, a camp that has uh, that has some some more some more grounding. Well, and here's the other question, and you kind of uh, you brought it up, but I think kind of hammered on it just a little bit. If women are not allowed to to teach, then we need to take their words as scripture. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we need to remove the Song of Deborah. We need to take Miriam's teachings. We need to take possibly Song of Songs, uh, maybe even Ruth, according to the Megillah. Esther wrote her book. So there's this 
Google out there mm-hmm. that says uh, Priscilla may have written it. Hebrews, probably not likely. But if we're not going to listen to women, then we've got to take the account out of, of Scripture. And why, why would we want to do that? Right. And so... Hannah. Hannah. You have yeah. to take her song out. Yeah. Which is the first prophecy of the Messiah from the lips of a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is... And- it, it's just interesting because you have the first prophecy of Messiah from the lips of the woman and the first reports of the resurrection from the, from women. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's all over the place. And it, it's, it's like, if you're actually paying attention to the Bible and, and reading what's there and, and I love the fact that you went through the entire list of where women are called, are specifically mm-hmm. called prophets in the Bible. Mm-hmm. There's seven um, in the old Testament. Um, because you know, I, MacArthur had his deal a few was a month or two ago when yeah when he said that nowhere in the Old Testament is any woman ever called a prophet and then he went back and corrected himself though said there's no sustained prophet prophecy by women but but still I mean if you're going what does that even mean right well what does that Obadiah one page one page of scripture from Obadiah well, yeah, so, no, I mean, no, I mean, what, what, what does that mean? There's no sustained prophecy. I mean, does, what can he define that? Does he mean that it's not in the Bible? Because it, they clearly are. Yeah. Well, and, and his response sorry, was. That, that's just, I didn't hear his response because that's just asinine. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, not, I mean, I, the response, I'm not saying, I'm not mm-hmm. trying to insult him, but that's a weak defense. It is. Well, and one of the things he points out is, oh, well, it was just Miriam in particular. He's like, that was just kind of a musical event now, wasn't it? Well, almost 90% of your prophecy is musical or poetic. Or poetic, yeah. I mean, and should we get rid of the Psalms? Right. How I about mean, Isaiah and Jeremiah? Jeremiah is considered some of the oldest lyric poetry ever written. And yeah. I mean. it's <laughs> So, yeah, if we put these rules and these standards on women then they need to be applied to men. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And, well, I, and, and I, I just, and, and not to insult MacArthur, I, but I just, I, I think that's a weak defense. Hmm? And, and I mean, maybe he more clearly defined it in wherever you found the not article. Really. But yeah, and I should go back and look at it. And I, and I, I, I want to now see, see <laughs> yeah. what his, his correction was. But I, that just baffles me that you can even think that that's any kind of defense for that statement. Well, so, I think and, he spoke out of his heart and then he realized it couldn't be defended. And he, that was as much as he could bring himself to backtrack, but that's uh, some letters to me. So yeah, <laughs> Emily Dixon, uh, Raven Creek SC at Gmail. Um, you can contact us, hit us up on social media, Raven Creek SC.com. We'll get you to all of the places you can find us. Um, if you like what you heard, hit us up on Patreon. <laughs> Um, thanks for joining us. This has been quite an interesting episode. Um, From so. nitty gritty Greek and <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, I really have enjoyed it, uh, particularly the last half because <laughs> I, I think it's where I get wound up. Well, it's a little more practical. Mm-hmm. It's a little more practical. And okay, and I'm, I'm not gonna harp on MacArthur too much. I, I, <laughs> but and and I hate to even name names because then people are like, oh, well, he's. He can't be Christian because he doesn't respect MacArthur or whatever. I don't care. I'm not a respecter of most people anyway. <laughs> Call um, no man father. So, uh, yeah, well, exactly. We can get into that, too. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, call no man father. But because it, it, here's the thing. Uh, I actually read a book a few years ago by MacArthur uh, called Worship the Ultimate Priority, um, which I think is kind of a funny title anyway. But he he states 
that preaching of the word is the highest form of worship. And I assume now, again, he didn't clearly define this, but I'm going to assume what he defines as preaching is what pastors do on Sunday morning. Behind a pulpit. Behind the pulpit, which means that women will never be able to worship God as fully and wonderfully as him. Mm -hmm. And then what are we going to do after the new earth gets here? I mean, so, I mean, do we stop getting the ability to worship God in in fullness? I, I don't. I don't know. So again, these are just quite, those are questions I have. And if he wants to answer, that's totally fine. That'd be great. <laughs> um, just, you know, spell the website, right? So anyway, um, <laughs> just link to the right URL. Um, I, and I, I do say that out of, out of respect for, you know, he, he, he has worked with the gospel for years, I, mm-hmm. but I do think he has let the, he's let the culture color, uh, his view on, on egalitarian and, and, uh, yeah. And complimentarian thing. So we're already over an hour, but I do have one more thing that I, I thought of this earlier and Uh-oh. I know, I, I know I've already done, done the contact information. Uh, if you're still listening, you're, you know, <laughs> you're, you're diehard in, true fan. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I want to throw this out there cause RC Sproul, um, I love RC Sproul. Um, it, I, I, and I say that, I mean, not, I mean, I don't say that any, in a condescending way. Um, I, I've, I've enjoyed a lot of his work. Um, I actually, I have a DVD series by him and I, I, I love listening to him teach cause you can tell he loves, mm-hmm. uh, the scripture. Um, now here's one that, uh, I was listening to another and I didn't hear this from him, but I was listening to another podcast that referenced, uh, head coverings and they, they referenced that Sproul said that they do practice it in their church for fear uh, or because they out of respect for what the the Bible says about head coverings mm-hmm. and that they would rather practice head coverings and not accidentally be in sin uh, rather than, rather than uh, not, you know, mm-hmm. rather than, than do it. Err on the and, side of caution. Yeah. Err on the side of caution. So what would you, what, how, how would you, how would you respond to that to, to the verses that we've, that you've, the two verses you've quoted? <laughs> should we, should we, be exercising more caution and then we might not, so we don't accidentally wind up in sin. What's, what's your take on that? I, I think that if, if you really, this is a concern, then by all means, you know, respect it, you know, do, do the head covering. I personally do not think that it's necessary. Uh, I love Heiser again. I didn't point out one of the things that he talked about that, hair was considered part of the reproductive system in ancient culture. Sure. And so, well, well, I'm not talking about yeah. head covering specifically. What would you say if someone referenced that type of thought, that line of thought for women speaking in the church is what I'm asking. Mm, okay. If that is your kind of thought for, um, speaking in the church, you know, if you're really convicted that it's wrong and, and you just can't shake it, then it's probably wrong for you. There's probably some reason why God's saying, Hey, you need to draw back from that. Um, I, I, I'm cool with that. I mean, there's some people, some men who shouldn't be around women whatsoever, if they're going to stay in any kind of right standing before God. Fair um, enough. And if that's you, then by all means, but I don't think you need to make it a blanket statement for all women. And I don't think it, it that you need to realize that's you. And mm-hmm. I think that you need to realize this is where God has called you. And if you want to talk about it and try to to explain why you can pull, you know, the right rationale or evidence out of scripture, 
then yeah, by all means, contact us. We'll we'll go over it. I doubt anyone's going to convince me differently because I have studied it. Sure. And you know that was one of the big issues when I went to seminary um, that I had to look at myself because I we did grow up in that Southern Baptist church where I remember even pulling commentaries off of Grandpa's bookshelf and being told to put them back. You know, basically, mm-hmm. we leave the heavy theological lifting to the boys. So, you know, I, I've looked at it and no one's going to, I don't want to say no one's ever going to convince me otherwise. I want to leave that room that if someone just smacks me in the face with something, you know, concrete, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then I want to be willing to obey God. But so far, my obedience is I'm doing this. I, I'm driving up here every week or whenever we're doing these. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing the work at home. I feel like I'm being obedient to what God's called me to do and to mm-hmm. use the gifts I've done. So I've have been given. So, yeah, um, I, I pay attention to the Holy Spirit, and you know, and err on the side of grace. If you don't have a real strong conviction, and you know, you show up at some place and a woman's preaching, and you're kind of on the fence, listen, and then weigh your words, weigh what she said. Yeah, beyond just what her body is. You know, is she? teaching truth yeah and you know, i mean you should be weighing the words of every pastor mm-hmm. you listen to i mean i've i've been to plenty of churches where i'm like well i'm not yeah not coming back here because that pastor does not know what he's doing yeah so um anyway that not to say that i always know what i'm doing but uh <laughs> most of the time we don't but there's sometimes it's really obvious that, um, <laughs> it's so obvious you even know <laughs> yeah exactly so um no cool and i just i just wanted to throw that out there i thought that was that was something that occurred to me earlier i meant to ask earlier but i i didn't so. yeah i hope it made sense i felt like it was kind of rambly but no no that was good uh so anyway um i've already told you where to find us out there in internet land uh if you want to be part of it uh give us a uh email i was gonna say a call but i don't have a phone number for for raven creek yet <laughs> i'm not giving my personal number out to anyone right now call me i'm not answering <laughs> yeah so Anyway, thank you so much. And uh, if you like what you heard, please uh, give us a rating on iTunes or a review. Uh, like us on, uh, follow us on YouTube, uh, like us on Facebook, all those one wonderful, fun things. All so, the appropriate actions. <laughs> yes, yes. So anyway, that being said, um, I'm going to see if we can get out of here. Now we're going to, we're not getting out of here before the hour 10 mark. So anyway. Thanks, everyone, for for being part of it, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us next week.